Okay, that's good. Hi, I'm Simon Mercer. Welcome back to Crave. Good to be with you again. Steve McCabe and I have missed your company Absolutely. for a few months. A few, uh, it's been three, can you believe it? I know. But this is a, a podcast and a videocast dedicated to film and TV and music and just about anything that's been entertaining Steve McCabe and I. Well, anything we've been able to get to, basically, really, Correct. to be fair. So so just like everybody, we've basically been keeping going on, well, Netflix for the most part, hasn't it been, really? So we're going to we're gonna have a quick chat about a couple of our favourites that we've enjoyed during, during the pandemic. We are. We're also going to talk about a film that's recently been released. It's a British satirical film called Greed. And basically it's about uh, rich people. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> how they get rich and how they stay rich. Absolutely. Uh, and then on top of that, we've also got... Ooh, it's a romantic drama. It's a comedy. It's a... Oh, God knows what it is, actually, to be perfectly honest. Okay. Um, I can tell how impressed you and are And it's, it's, it's called The High Note. And I guess the big question is, how high a note does it hit? And the answer will be revealed soon. Uh, we're going to hear from a real musician. The, the High Note is a film about music. Absolutely, uh, we've got yes. a real musician to talk to, or Steve has, um, yeah. the famous James Rain from Australian Crawl. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing that. Nice bloke, very nice bloke. That's, that's, that's for our podcast. That's a podcast special only. If you're watching this seriously, why not you subscribe to the podcast? It's your own fault. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk a wee bit about some of our Netflix highlights, but Simon, do you realise last time we actually got to see a film together, mid-March. <laughs> Yeah, okay, here we are in July. In, in July. <laughs> yes. Now, the last film we saw was also uh, by a British, it was a British film, uh, British cast, British director, and it was kind of a class satire in some ways. That's right, it was David, David Copperfield. Copperfield. Yes. Which was brilliant. Yes, it was really well done. I think that's been, because of COVID, it's only just coming to the cinemas as a it, general release soon, it, I was, think. Well, yes, it's still playing, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Having said that, Mary Poppins is playing at my local oh, pictures okay. as well. So, right. yeah, the, the, people just glad to be in the pictures, I yeah. think, to be honest. <laughs> but David Copperfield was brilliant. Yes. Was greed. Not for me, no. Ah, that's I think very you... controversial, sir. Okay, well, we're going to have a start our new season of Crave with a disagreement. That's good. Mm. So the film is Greed. It's from the director... Michael Winterbottom. It's about um, a, a self-made rag trade billionaire in in England called Reg McCready, uh, and the sto the story. Actually, you missed his name. R Reginald. No, it's, it's Rich. Rich. Of course, it was. <sighs> what else would it be? Rich McCready. Can't believe you missed that one, mate. Oh. Yeah. Okay. R thanks, mate. He's, he's Richard. Sir. Ri Sir. I've. Richard. Sir Richard. Richard. Okay. And they actually call him Rich once or twice. Which okay. Is, yeah. Yeah, that, I know the gag was a bit on the nose there, it was to a be bit. fair. Uh, so the film, um, in a way, centres around his 60th birthday celebrations. Yes. And how he wants to use his 60th birthday party to reignite his career. It's been faltering, and he thinks by getting all the celebs together, putting on a big bash, it'll just jettison him back into the limelight and get his business going again. Yes. Um, so in the film, we've got um, Steve Coogan playing the 60-year-old... The um, McCready. Yeah. A guy called uh, Jamie Blackley plays the younger Yo, he Rich. does him very well too, I think, he, I think very much so. And uh, there's a cast of characters and, and real celebrities in it. Uh, we should mention that the part of the storytelling of this film is that there's a writer mm. who's there along for the ride mm. to tell the biography of uh, Rich uh, and uh, played by David Mitchell. Yeah. So, um, okay, 
you perhaps we'll start with why you think it did work, Steve, and I'll tell you why I don't think it did. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll admit that that it's not a perfect film. First of all, yes, it's Stephen Coog- Steve Coogan. Right. But you said it's Steve Coogan as Rich McCready, yeah. and I'd take exception. It's as as always these days. It's Steve Coogan as Alan Partridge as right. Rich McCready. Okay. I mean, the the, the two have be- have become interchangeable. He is his own character these days. But um, the thing is. He didn't care because what makes this film, for me at least, mm. is a Coogan is a fantastic acting talent, as is everybody else in the film. But also, Michael Winterbottom's script is tart, it's sharp, it's nasty, it's very funny in places, uh, and the pace of the film, mm. especially when they're doing the flashback stuff. To you've got you've got young rich. Um, striking deals from London to Sri Lanka. He's going to shops, he's going to sweatshops, and he's, he's, he's convincing people to, um, to buy into absolutely rubbish deals. He basically bullies them into selling him stuff cheap so he can then flog it off at stupid prices. And, and even though the characters are thoroughly foul and reprehensible, they really are, yeah. um, they are written and acted in such a way that you find yourself, I found myself, totally buying into it. I was, I was really caught up with the film. I thought it was very, very well put together. And partly it was the fact that, you know, Winterbottom's direction is tight. It doesn't let up. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's a long film. It's two hours. Mm. Uh, it doesn't feel like it. Or okay. it didn't for me, but I have a sneaking suspicion <laughs> that you're about to tell me something different. Oh, well, I am going to tell you something different. Go on. But that's, that's good. Um, I just, for me, the film it was... There was too much going on in it, and it was several films at once. Yes, uh, to, that. For, for me, um, it told the story of um, the exploitation that goes on in the in the, the retail clothing industry, which yep. is a story which has been around for a long time, and, it, and yep. it's certainly a worthy story to tell about the exploitation of, uh, in this case, the, the the factory workers in Sri Lanka, mm. um, and that's coupled with the the rorting of the financial system in Britain yep. by the people running the trade, tax havens, all that is laid bare, and, and as you say, in quite a scathing and unsubtle way. There's oh, no yes. doubt about that. No, subtlety is um, not the strong point no, of this film. No, uh, but I just felt some of the film and some of the characters were played straight and dramatically, like the niece of um, a woman who dies in a factory mm. in, in Sri Lanka who ends up working for this McCready. So this is an Amanda played by Denita Gordon. Yeah, so some, char- some, some characters were very straight down the middle. They could have appeared in any dramatic movie. Other characters were, for me, played for comedy. I mean, I, um, David Mitchell's character of the sort of bumbling Englishman yeah. uh, was a comedic character most of the time, I thought. And Steve Coogan... That was to me a caricature. As I think you alluded to that as well. Yeah. So I, I didn't. That was not a um, for me a realistic portrayal of how that maybe he maybe a rag trade billionaire would act like that. I don't know. It seemed over the top to me. Yeah. And it didn't sit next to the other more dramatically played roles. Right. That, that was kind of where I. Well, there's two, two, things, two things to respond to with that. Number yeah. one, you mentioned David Mitchell's character who plays yeah. Nick, who's basically meant to be. McCready's hagiographer, really, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the reasons they have him doing that role is because he can then do what would otherwise be horribly clunky exposition. Because you remember there's one scene where 
like you say, there's there's there's, there's the rorting of the financial system. Yeah. And so uh, Mitchell's character Nick goes to visit a financial journalist. Yes. And basically says, "Explain it to me like I'm stupid." Yeah, yeah. And obviously, this being David Mitchell, he then has a quick riff about how. Well, obviously, I'm not actually stupid. You probably think I am stupid. <laughs> yes. And you can you can you can yeah. if, if you're familiar with David Mitchell, if you've not seen the film, you can hear him doing that because yes. that's his thing. Um, but it then gives that journalist an opportunity to explain the the whole concept of a leverage buyout, that, yeah. uh, and then the asset stripping that follows it. Yeah. That this character McCready did, and and it's based very closely on a guy named Philip Green. Right. Yes, I saw that. Was, yeah. yeah. Um, the character is, is, is in many ways essentially it's, it's Green renamed, mm. um, and so one of the things that comes out that that I think is when Coogan wasn't just being Alan Partridge, being MacReady, mm. was when he's in front of the select committee mm-hmm. and in Parliament. Mm. And you've got Miles Jupp as an MP who's trying to grill him, and, and MacReady just yeah. swats him around yes. like a cat with a toy. Yeah. And and that was that was a more nuanced version, I think, of him, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that um, the larger-than-life characters... Made as someone watch it just as a piece of cinema. Forget, yeah. uh, forget about the um, the importance of the story for a second. Yeah. But as a piece of cinema, I, I just felt I wasn't quite sh- where I was being directed. Was it to be laughing at the satirical, larger than life aspects, or yeah. to be really honing in on the serious, dramatic aspects of it? And so I I just found a little bit going between pillar and post on that. Um, in the end, it was a serious film. Yes, it was. Uh, if you'd watched the trailer, you wouldn't have thought you were, that's what you were going to go and see. Yeah. Um, and so it was, um, yeah, it just didn't quite, as a piece of cinema, hit the mark for me. Right, okay. But, but you know, here's another thing I thought couldn't help but go think on. about. I wonder what you thought go as we're getting to find out about this billionaire and how he gets to where he gets to. And we talked, we, there was a sequence there where we find out how much he loves the deal. Yes, and walks over people and and dismisses his losses. Are, are you? Does that, is you, that, you, you that remind you, you of someone? You, you're not thinking of the art of the deal by any chance, are you? Oh, I mean, it well, was seemed, it, 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 <laughs> it was very that, Trumpian. I thought that that's possibly in there. Yeah, where where there, there was a degree to which all he cared about was winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know that that line he kept using of like, like just nod your head and shake my hand. Yes, all that mattered was that 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 he won. Yeah, that even if he he saved a pound. He'd save the pound, and not somebody else. Yes, uh, and it, it, yeah, it was. He's a distasteful character. Yeah, he, oh, was, he was meant to be. Yes, I, I, I personally, and and I know this is very polarizing. Our um, our intrepid guest reporter Deb can't stand him. Okay. I personally really like Steve Cooper. Oh yeah, uh, and, and and a lot. The film very much hinges on his performance, and so if if you're willing to buy into him. I think you get a lot more out of it. If you find him simply, as you say, larger than life, mm. then I think it's going to lose you. And it yeah. sounds like he didn't. I didn't quite get there. But that, the other thing that I thought was interesting, seeing that film, here we are in, this, in the throes of economic upheaval around yeah. the world, where one of the industries which has been hit hard has been retail and the service yes. industry and international trade is in question now. So yeah. some of the premise of this film will have been, at, at the very mm. least, unsettled by more recent events yes quite, um, quite possibly yes. yeah anyway but I, it's I'm not so i wouldn't say don't go and see it because there's a really important um political and social aspect to it that is worth very worthy but I, I don't for me this treatment 
didn't work. I thought they were shoehorning too much in. For example, as well as everything else you and I have just talked mm. about, there was a whole other uh, story about Syrian refugees. Yes. Uh, who were plonked, uh, sorry, ended up on a beach in Greece where the yeah. party was being held. Yeah. And what did we make of their position? They were on a public beach. Should they, should they have been moved on? At one point, some kids steal some cutlery. Was that bad? Was that good? I mean, there's a whole different theme and story and, and set of um, uh, questions to be asked about that. That's so, a really good so point. So I just yeah. thought, boy, you're really putting a lot in here, Michael. Um, I, I, it might have been a cleaner, more direct film with a little less content, I thought. Well, one thing, I, I, I did a bit of reading up about the film after I'd seen it. Yeah. Um, and, and apparently, um, mm. and I'm trying to find his name, I believe yeah. his name is um, Karim Al- Al-Kabani. Oh, he, he's actually a, a Syrian, Syrian refugee. refugee. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, again, you know, playing to type, that's actually literally who he was. Yeah. And, and you know, Winterbottom's definitely trying to, trying to entertain us and also educate at us. Yeah. In yeah. a little bit. In fact, another thing I discovered yeah. was you remember at the very end, the during the the now what do they call them? Not, not the title cards, but the, the credits. You, right before the credits, there's a series of cards they show yes. with information about yes. um, how much various um, CEOs of these companies make. Yeah, it's information that's, that's explicitly mentioned during, as I talked about before, those uh, select committee scenes. Yes, but Winterbottom was actually told to take a lot of that stuff out. Oh. by the, the film company. Was it Sony? I think it was Sony. They okay. told him, no, um, you're being too political. And he was actually required to remove some of that stuff. It's pretty political anyway, I thought. Yeah, because okay, clearly, clearly um, Winterbottom's goal in this film was not simply to make us laugh. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. no. And I, I, as I say, I think as, as the film progressed, the humour receded more and more. Yeah, it okay. It was dark. It was oh, yeah. a dark humour. Um, and... Yeah, it was a, ended up being quite a st- strong drama, political, social drama, as yeah. much as a, a comment. Yeah. Anyway, it, um, oh, I'd be interested to hear what um, uh, our listeners and viewers make. Of yes, this. if you see that, please get in touch with us. Um, send us a write to us, you know, podcast at cravepodcast.com, or you can find us on the internet anywhere. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, you'll find us. But we'd love to know what you made of it because, you know, clearly Simon's wrong. But, that, <laughs> but, but that's fair enough, you know. We, we, we can't all be right all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> But, but, <laughs> yes, yes. I think we might be slightly more in agreement on our second film today. Maybe we might. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so the, this, is, this is the high note. Yes. So this is um, uh, set in America. It's about the music business, not the rag trade. And it's it, it centers on a middle-aged, yes. black female pop singer yep. called Grace Davis, who is is managed by a guy called Jack, played by Ice Cube. Um, Grace is played by an actress called Tracy Ellis Ross. And uh, the key relationship is that Grace Davis has a personal assistant called um, Maggie, isn't it? Yes. Maggie, played by Dakota Johnson. And uh, does uh, the, Grace is at a bit of a crossroads in her career. And, uh, her j- manager, Jack, is saying, oh, I think we, you know, we've got to keep the money rolling in. We've got to play it safe. Yeah. Get, get you a, a gig in Vegas. Well, we're uh, talking about a, a residency. A residency. Right? Yes. Uh, and, and, but Maggie, the young personal assistant who has grown up with music and lo- yearns to be a producer, a yes. music producer herself, says, "No, you've you know you've got put out a new album, put some new stuff out there. Let's 
reignite your career yes. that way. So that that's kind of one of the settings of this film. Yeah. Into the mix, uh, Maggie um, happens to stumble across an aspiring young singer-songwriter um, called David, David Cliff, and she has has an interesting relationship with him. And so the story evolves around Maggie, whoops, excuse me, balancing her relationships with the established star Grace and the up-and-comer David. And uh, I won't spoil the end, but there's an ele- it's it's a light-ish most of the time a light-ish formulaic. Oh God, yes. Um, I'm not in, a story. I'm not in know, a good way. Yeah, okay. Uh, so yeah, t- you tell me more about that. Not in the good way, part. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. I mean, you used a couple of words in there. Yes. That that, that unfortunately are going to completely get pulled away. First of all, you said you said interesting. Oh, did I? Uh, yeah, you said yeah, the, 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 love, the love interest bit with David. Oh, I see. And no, not, not even remotely. Okay. And secondly, you said he's an aspiring mm. musician. And one of the big problems with that whole story arc was that she meets him. He's, he's independently fabulously wealthy. Um, yes. And a, quite a talented singer and musician, but with no aspiration whatsoever. And she has to coax him into um, recording. Because he's 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 got there's nothing about him. He he seems to have no hidden depths whatsoever. He's the most pointless character. He, okay, keep going. Um, <laughs> but then so is she. To be honest, I mean Dakota Johnson is not a gifted and talented actress by any stretch. She simpered her way through the Fifty Shades films, uh, which were unmitigated dross. They were absolutely unbearably bad. But we knew that going in. and uh, But this one has aspirations of being a good film. But the problem is, she can't carry a film. She's not a strong acting talent. Okay. Um, I, I think she's not a strong character in the film. I think that's absolutely true. In fact, her character is, if you use your word, a bit simpering. Who can't, yes. who can't um, express herself forcefully when she wants to make a point. Yeah, that's true. That is part of her character. Yeah. Whereas um, Grace, played by um, Tracy Ellis Ross, is a strong. Oh, character. she's much better. Yes. Yeah, and and um, you could argue we don't even we don't see enough of her in the film. Um, that that story of a middle aged artist at this crossroads trying to figure out what to do is was an interesting story. It's also struggling with racial and gender sort of barriers as well. In fact, there's an even thing. There's in the trailer. She's she's saying to to, to Maggie. Um, there's only ever been five women over 40 only ever one black woman over 40 um, who have had a number one hit in the US yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's where she is you know she, she's a woman who was accustomed to having number one hits yeah and she's about to set foot in territory where the number ones are going to dry up yeah and and that would have been a much more interesting film it's also the film that the trailer promised us yeah right well that's twice in these we're talking yes. about trailers which didn't really lead you into what you were going to be delivered in fact um, the trailer basically writes david out of the film entirely mm. even though he's actually a fairly significant yeah part of it in fact in some ways one the one parallel that came to my mind was it hints at a star is born it did. It did. Because you've got that, yes. that kind of thing yes. going on, yeah? Yeah, I thought that too. Um, with, except that they, rather than the two of them supporting each other, you've got the same person being the pivot for both yes. of them. Yes, yes. But um, it, it didn't, didn't know how to work that very well because half the time it would, it, would, it would completely focus on Grace and then it would completely focus on David and, and there was no sense of any continuity in the film at all. Yeah, I think um, I enjoyed parts of it. I did think it was too long. Oh, God. I, I, did, oh, I, I yeah. really felt like it would. It just didn't get to where it needed to go quick enough. Um, some aspects. You, you mentioned the um, the relationship between David and Maggie. Yeah. Um, I, d- I actually didn't. Qu- I didn't mind that because it was 
one of the one of the good things about this film is that you've got uh, black characters and, and white characters, and the fact that they're different gender uh, races doesn't seem to me. Why should it warrant any mention? The fact that no. she may have a relationship with David or whatever, it's or that she's working for two more powerful black figures. It means nothing. It's you're, you're right. It was completely unmarked, wasn't unmarked, it? Unmarked, yeah. which is a, a, in this time a good thing to probably put out there. Yeah. So I give it some, a tick for that. Yeah. Um, but um, um, yeah, I think the probably uh, Maggie was intentional intentionally. A, a wishy-washy character, but didn't help the storytelling. In that case, she was brilliantly cast. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The music in it is um, pop, not massively um, outstanding music. I thought there was lip syncing, certainly on the part of David, probably on the part of Grace. I'm not quite so sure about her. I would imagine so. Films like that generally speaking yeah. tend to be, um, don't they? Um, but I, there was, I think that. To come back to what you were saying about Grace, the character of Grace, yeah. and there was a there's a scene where Grace confronts some music executives in a boardroom. Oh yeah, highlight of the film. Probably. It was a very that uh, was a strong scene, and yeah. it was big, and that had nothing really to do with Maggie at all. And in fact, I don't think she's even in that scene. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? I, I, one little little scene I want to mention though cool. is a little cameo. Uh, oh yeah! Oh oh yes! Scene uh, stealing. Well, absolutely. Sorry, from, scene stealing. I yeah, say, sorry. from Eddie Izzard. Oh yeah, I thought that was brilliant. He's on screen for what two minutes, if that, and in, in a few well-written, short little lines, yeah. he gives you an entire backstory of this character who's been in the music industry for a long time. Yes, it was really, really well done, and it, it all the more so because it, it contrasted <laughs> so much with the long, yeah. long drawn-out story yeah. that was going on around it. I thought that was That's really good. That's a really good point. Yeah, I like that, yeah. Almost go see the film just to see a one minute of Eddie Izzard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had no idea he was in it before. No. Up he pops up. Oh, wow, look who it is. <laughs> yeah, and you're right, he's absolutely, he's superb. So that, but he's part of the, what the music industry does to a middle-aged, especially a female and black middle-aged yes. performer. He was part of that storyline. Yeah. And, and that's the film I would like to see. Fair Ice enough. Cube. As now, what was his name? Jack. Was it Jack? Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. The manager and the interplay between those two was was really really good. It was. This, this is a man who cares deeply about um, not just his his asset, yeah. but you can tell this, this has become a friend. Yeah. And and the relationship that they had, they were sparking up each other really really nicely. But then as soon as he starts interacting with Maggie, mm. he's just gruff and barky. Yeah. And he was nowhere near as good. But when you've got the two two talented actors, and Ice Cube is a decent actor, he really is. The two of them together worked well. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that was that was yeah. a strong film. I think that they have, if it had been at least half an hour shorter, yes, and maybe refocused more to Grace, yes, you would have had a quite a potent little drama there. Oh yeah. Um, but I think it did get um, it got caught up in the romantic arc of of the Maggie's relationship with David, and it took a long time to get there. And you had some sort of Typical, stereotypical side characters, the maid and mm. the best friend. Oh, the best friend was so, yeah, so, so by the numbers. I, I, very much by the numbers. So yeah. that was a shame. I think it's, um, I'm not going to rave about it by any means. No, a few elements there that were nice, but yeah, unfortunately I mean, It wasn't not. even really about music. I mean, the, to, to the extent that it was, it, the, the, they would just rattle off facts about musicians mm. and it felt more like stamp collecting than actual love of music <laughs> it, you know oh 
How many different versions of Sam Cooke's song can you recite? When they did that, yeah. that made me think of another film. Go on then. Um, it made me think of High Fidelity. Oh. Based on the book by Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby, which is all about people swapping yeah. information about yeah. records and things. And it just veered off into that for a yeah. second or two. I thought, well, this could be interesting, but it didn't stay but, there very long. But no, it didn't. Because again, it didn't really. It, it didn't feel so much like an actual work of passion, people who care about music, mm. so much as it felt like somebody who basically downloaded a bunch of facts off Wikipedia was now just checking off a list. It's, it's a shame, really. It's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there we don't, go. Don't go. Middling. Just take, take our word for that. You'll, you'll, you'll be glad you didn't. Seriously. James Rain releases his new album, Toontown Lullaby, on July the 10th. And so I caught up with him recently to have a bit of a chat about the new album and also about the, by coincidence, the 40th anniversary of the release of Australian Crawl's classic album, The Boys Light Up. James Rain, thank you very much for speaking to us today. How are you, mate? Uh, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Not, not too bad, thanks. And, and where are you? I'm in a place called the Mornington Peninsula, which is about an hour and a bit south of Melbourne. Okay, and and I mean the reason I ask is is because you know obviously you, you're very much an Australian artist, but this last album that you're, you're getting ready to release is it's a very American sounding album, so you could easily be in either place right now. Well, thank you. Yes, I think it is. There's lots of guitars on there, and a lot of the songs are kind of, you know, some of them are sort of referring to America or based in America. So yeah. I mean, I mean the, um, the very first track on it's a little old town south of Bakersfield. Yeah, it's funny because I think it's a different order. Little old town south of Bakersfield. I think the first one on the actual album is Toontown. But yeah, a little oh, old okay. town south of Bakersfield is kind of about when I li- I lived in Los Angeles in the late eighties, on and off for about six or seven years. Oh right. So it's kind of about you know me, let's say, not recognizing opportunities when they were put in front of me, with the benefit of hindsight. Right, fair enough. Yeah, uh, you know, because um, you know, I, I listen to it. And I'm hearing, you know, it starts off there's almost a sort of punky, slightly edge to it, but then the the country kicks in a little bit. So, I mean, how does that fit into the album overall? Tell us a bit more about the album. Um, well, the album, I suppose, overall sonically, is kind of smooth, a kind of cruisy sort of record. I've got a couple of songs on there that I wrote on piano, which I was because I can't play piano very well. I te- they tend to end up being ballady kind of things because I can just plonk out a few chords um, but yeah I suppose it's got a it's American sound in the sense that I play guitar and I made it with a guy called Dorian West who plays his guitar amongst other instruments um, and I like you know Americana kind of music so nice. there's always going to be that kind of influence in there um, but it's a kind of smooth cruisy sort of record I think the one you're talking about Little Old Town South of Bakersfield is the most up-tempo thing on it to be honest yeah, possibly, yeah. And I'm just looking at the, the, the files I was sent. They're definitely in alphabetical order, maybe not actually the uh, uh, there you, go. you had intended. Yeah. So that's probably what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's what, right. Wrong guys at the very end. Okay. So that would make sense. But then, you know, you, you say it's a very um, sort of acoustic and cruisy record. The next thing on is Burning Books. And that's, that's quite a contrast from the stuff I've been hearing, say, when you were in the Australian Crawl. Yeah, although I've made about nine solo records since Australian Crawl. So I've usually... I've, you know, I've been fairly liberal with the piano ballads. Right. But, um, yeah, Burning Books is just, I mean, I, I don't know, I wrote it. I started off reading, and, I'm, you know, I haven't written too many kind of conservation songs, but I do remember reading and being astounded, thinking in 
2000, I read somewhere, 2035, there will be no more tigers. Oh, wow. And I think, what? That really brings it home. And then I started reading about all the, there won't be any, probably any sloths, sloths, or there won't be any, you know, rhinos if we're not careful. So we're, you know, we're stupidly killing off all these animals. So that's where I start. That's where the idea of that song started. And then the chorus kind of comes into the world. And yet here we are in this funny little country, Australia, you know, making more fuss about someone like Hugh Jack, Jackman striding, you know, lean ripped and rippling from the surf. Yeah. So, um, you know, nothing is him personally, but just though, as someone like that. So I just think, you know, the kind of playing on the fact of our two different kind of, uh, you know, focuses. That seems reasonable. So, so I assume you won't be actually singing about Hugh Jackman coming rippling from the surf anytime soon, then, no? No, sorry, say that again. I said, so you'll actually be singing about Hugh Jackman coming rippling out of the surf anytime no. soon. That's, that's not a spoiler no, for your not, next album. Yeah, exactly. I won't be doing that because I, I was sort of referring it all back to myself. You know, they're not taking, they're not standing outside my house with their flash bulbs. You know, the paparazzi. They're not taking pictures of me striding, lean, ripped, and rippling from the surf. They're too busy killing the rhinos. Nah, fair enough. Sounds reasonable. Sounds reasonable. So, so since, we, since, since, well, I, I've mentioned um, Australian Crawl, and, and the fact is, as you said, you have released numerous um, solo albums since then, but I noticed that the, this new album, um, Toontown Lullaby, it's, it's um, strategically timed to coincide with the 40th anniversary of The Boys Light Up. Was that coincidence? Yeah, that's funny. Was that planned? Yeah, no, it's coincidence. I've, I, I've only thought about it since, well, you mentioned, someone else mentioned it to me. I think, oh, I didn't even think of that. Um, the thing is, is that we, were going, we have this big tour booked at the end of the year and it's basically sold out. But here in Australia, I really realistically don't think we'll be able to do it. We'll have to postpone it like we've postponed everything else yeah. till probably yeah. sometime next year. But that was just pure coincidence. I had an album of songs ready to go. I thought, well, I'll record them. And then it was just a pure yeah, pure coincidence that at the end of the year we were going out and just celebrating the fact it was 40 years since that first record came out. Do you find people referring back to those days an awful lot or is it just me? Yeah, when you do, when I do PR interviews, yeah, people, I'm, look, I'm used to it, I don't mind it, but of course it's, it's my past and it's what a lot of people know about me, so I, you know, I don't mind and I guess it gives some point of reference, and, but yes, people do refer to it a lot. And you still get people expecting remember. you to play that music? Well, I do live. I mean, we play, I play some other songs. Look, when we play live, you know, I play most of the songs. Everyone's going to know the songs when I play. You know, it's all the stuff that people know. Um, and I like some of the songs, Boys Light Up and Reckless and uh, Errol and things like that. I, I like playing. You know, they're not bad songs. The song called I Know It You Again that I like. And there are also lots of my older solo stuff that I like playing. And they were hits as well that people know those. No, of course. And I mean, I was listening to the boys lights up this afternoon before, before we uh, had the call. And it occurs to me, it has, I mean, musically, I think it's held up very well. Lyrically, possibly a touch suspect in places. The boys light up. Uh, yeah. I always thought it sort of held up because it kind of comes around, you know, it's, it's, it's a universal thing. Mm. Um, well, I'm thinking of songs like Chinese Eyes, for example. Oh, that, the whole album, I tried yeah. to it's terrible. That's a terrible song. <laughs> you know, there's some there terrible songs on there. I thought you meant the actual song, Boys Light Up. No, no I never played Chinese. I don't think we played Chinese Eyes back then. That's awful. I have to that's say, that's, that's, the most, album that's the most refreshingly honest comment I've ever had from an interviewee. Thank you for that. Well, I had it. See, my girlfriend at the time was Chinese. Right. So I wrote it about her, but it's, oh, it's a terrible song. It's awful. Oh, fair enough. Awful okay. 
So, so that was, I was, thought I was going to provoke some sort of controversy there, but that's very, very honest of you. Nah. No, I was writing about someone who was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, so she had, she had Chinese eyes. So oh, I just call it Chinese eyes. Fair enough. I can't really argue with that. So, so you were saying you had a, a tour planned um, to promote yeah. um, Toontown Lullaby. So obviously that's completely gone. No, to t- a plan to do the 40-year anniversary of Boys Light Up. Oh, I beg your pardon. So to, yeah, well, to promote the album, yeah. So, but I guess either way, regardless of what your plans were, everything's been kind of um, yeah. shelved Put on hold. Yeah. yeah, it has. Yeah. Um, so, so how are you feeling your time at the moment? Um, well, I use most days I get it, try and get out. I mean, we're, we're allowed, look, it's loosened a bit here. I mean, although we're in Victoria and Victoria's just had these last, last few days, you had a spike in the cases, I think, cause they're madly, they're swabbing every, there are, I think five or six suburbs where they're, they're calling hotspots. And I think they're trying to, they're actually trying to, I think, swab every single person in those suburbs. So suddenly with all this extra swabbing, they're finding more cases, which is going to happen, I guess. Um, the rest of the country seems to be on sort of zero cases or two, but okay. uh, you know, look, they're working hard to get on top of it. Um, I'm filling my time. I go running or swimming every day. I go and do some sort of exercise. Um, you know, I do stuff out in the garden. I've been writing bits and pieces. Uh, I read a lot. I've, you know, you're, I'm exhausting Netflix and all those mm-hmm. sort of streaming services. Um, I think like everybody, you know, I'm cooking more at home. I'm sick of my own cooking, but I, you know, no, you tend sure. to cook more at home. Sounds sounds reasonable. I mean, are you getting much writing done for uh, maybe a, a next album, or is it too soon to talk about? Well, I'm always tinkering with some song or other, but I've been writing other stuff as well, not songs. So, I, yeah, I'm always tinkering with something. Whether or not I'll make another album up in another, you know, four or five years, I don't know. No, that sounds reasonable. And, and I mean, how soon do you think you might be able to get back on the road? I mean, I, I realise that everything's up in the air at the moment, but yeah. Well, there was something we were hoping to do in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. We were going to do a month of Sundays at a there's a place a, a venue in Melbourne called the Station Hotel, which is a kind of iconic inner city venue. Yeah. And we were going to yeah. do that. It holds on eight nine hundred people, but we were thinking, well, if they let two or three hundred people in the building, we would we were going to try and do every Sunday in September to maybe oh, right. two or three hundred people. Oh, what a great idea! So that was a plan. Now mm-hmm. whether that's going to be postponed because of these these new cases i don't know there are also three shows we're supposed to do in october to make up for several that were cancelled in the tour we're doing at the beginning of the year right it was called the red hot summer tour we were in the middle of that and that got had to be stopped um so the promoter is going to has has booked these three shows so we're hopefully going to do those if in fact we're allowed to have you know outdoor gatherings of people yeah i mean i i I do understand everything is completely up in the air at the moment um Mm. Do, do you envisage getting over here to New Zealand at any time? Yeah, well, obviously we love New Zealand and my friend Mark Simron and I have been there several times together. I've been there a lot of times myself. Um, yeah, look, as soon as we can, as soon as, as soon as doors open, we'll be yeah. there. And we love New Zealand and we know New Zealand and we know there's a great audience in New Zealand and we're always made to feel extremely welcome. And um, so, you know, as soon as we can get back there, we get back there. Oh, that sounds great. Sounds great. Um, so let's go back to talk about the um, the new album a little bit more. Uh, yeah. Because it's something you, you, you're clearly very very proud of. Um, you know, listening to it, I, I hear so much going on. It's a very rich production. Production. Um, and then obviously I've been sent, you know, um, uh, PR notes to go with it. And it, it says that you 
and uh, you produce a Dorian West. This has played nearly everything. So, yeah, between us, we played so, everything except the drums. Oh, wow. So, so we got John, Wat John Watson, who plays drums with me, has for many, many years. We got John to come in and play drums. Brilliant. But between Dorian and I, we managed to play everything. So, so what's, what's a live show going to look like then? Who, who, who do you have lined in for your backing band? Well, I've, I've been working with the same band and I consider my band, I'm just the singer in my band, even though we sing on my songs. So we have a bass, drums, two, three guitars, because I play rhythm guitar, so three guitars. Right. And if, when we do new songs from the album, we'll probably add a keyboard player. So it's three guitars, bass, drums, you know, piano, keyboards. And everybody sings, so the singing's really good. We get lots of, you know, three, four-part harmonies. Yeah, there's some, so fairly, there's some fairly impressive backing vocals going on in that album, yeah. Yeah, well, that's me and Dorian. I mean, we're sitting down and working it out and then, you know, just doing, just, it's, you know, laboriously just doing track by track. Yeah. And I understand Dorian's daughter's on this album as well, yeah? Yes. So, yeah, so she sings on as well. She's got a lovely voice and she's, she's quite young. She was studying. Um, to, you know, she wants to be a singer and she's got really lovely tones. So we got her to sing on some songs as well. Excellent. So, so it's clearly an album you, you, you're quite proud of. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I think... The last song on the record's called uh, "Wrong Guy, Wrong Room, Wrong Night." I don't think I don't think we got that quite right. That's just me. Okay. But, um, but I think the rest of it's all right. You know, it stands up. Yeah, I think it's it's good. So you say you don't think you got it right. I mean, like I say, this this is this is alarmingly uh, refreshing from an interviewee to actually be be as as um, frankly critical of their own work as you're being. It's actually quite fascinating to hear. What what do you think it's um, I should say lacking? What what do you think misled? Well, I think in the song, I, I know what I was trying to do, but mm -hmm. I don't think I got it. And I think there's a middle eight in it that does this kind of, this kind of key leap. And sometimes if you get them right, they can be really effective. But I think I, I did, it was the wrong idea to go from a, from a major to a minor, so to speak. I mean, okay. I, don't, I, thought, I don't know that, that means anything to anybody, but I should have gone, stayed in the major key if I, when I did the, the key change. And also I just don't think I got, and also there's a song there called The Tallest Man I Ever Knew. I like the song, yeah. but it plays better as just an acoustic song. And I don't think, I don't think it's, it's probably too slow or something. There's something not quite, you know, that's to me. I mean, no one else probably noticed it, but I kind of go, eh, you know. So it's like a bit of an eight out of 10 record, really. Wow. I, I, again, I'm blown away by your, your frankness here. So the, so the Tallest Man I Ever Knew, this is about um, you mate Brad Robinson, yeah? Correct. So that's going to be like the song. Sorry? It's going to have to be a very personal song, surely. It's a very personal song. And, and, and I, all I've done, I've filled it full of sort of in-jokes that probably only he and I would know, you know, and he's not with us anymore. So it's only me that knows them. But um, I couldn't help it. I just threw him in there. And I like, just amused me lyrically to put those things in there. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe if I have, I might record it again acoustically, because I think I've played it acoustically before and it just sits better when it's a little bit more up-tempo. Yeah. And I think uh, it needs to be up it needs to be upper tone in key, I think. Fair enough. We'll, we'll Which is these be... things, and you don't... No, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. You, uh, th and these are the sort of things you don't really realise until you've done it. You think, and I often do this with records, you know, they're not all great. And I think, well, you know, I didn't, didn't really make it with that song. That song's a bit of filler. <clears throat> so, but I had it there. I, I had best intentions for it, but certainly wrong guy. I like the phrase wrong guy, wrong room, wrong night. I like that as a phrase, as a chorus for a song. And I put it in, I don't know, I just don't think I got the song right. Nothing to do with Dorian, it's to do with me. Just, you know, just the writing of it wasn't particularly 
was a bit, it's, a, it's flawed, you know. Ah, fair enough. Well, I'm just thinking, we had Bob Dylan here um, last year. And, right. And he, he completely reinvented very nearly every song he played that night. Um, so I'm wondering maybe when, when you actually do get around to touring these songs, maybe that's your opportunity to, to rework them then. You, you, can, you can do um, The Tallest Man as an acoustic number, for example. Correct. And I think I would. I think I'd just maybe have two acoustic guitars and just have, you know, my vocal and one other person singing the harmonies. And I think that would suffice. I think that would really, that's pretty much all the song needs, really. Now, fair enough. You could possibly even um, rethink that, that key change in the middle eight of Wrong Man. I certainly would probably do that. In fact, if I ever play that song again, I'm going to ignore the key changes there and I'll just rewrite the key change and put a new one in, in a major key. Yeah, and, and that's not going to confuse the audience. Uh, well, I tell you what, if it does, that's a nice problem to have because if they start complaining because they love the song so much and too many people listen to it, then that means a lot of people have bought the record and they're listening to it. You make a very good point. But it, it does occur to me, <laughs> as you're talking about songs like uh, The Tallest Man I Ever Knew, it must be nice to be writing songs, um, writing records even for yourself now. Well, I, I, a lot of my songs, well, the last few albums I've made, I, I, if I think about the songs, a lot of them are sort of autobiographical. I mean, a lot of the songs on this are purely autobiographical. I mean, there's a song called Low Hanging Fruit. Yeah. It's just about my immediate reaction. I don't know what they're called, what they're called in New Zealand. We're over here, we have these things called the ARIA Awards, mm-hmm. which are like, you know, the, it's like the Australian version of, I guess, the Grammys. Right. But it's nowhere near as cool as getting a Grammy. And it's one of these things you sort of, in my house, I'm not allowed to watch it because I just get, I start shouting at the television. Right. But then anyway, last year I watched it and wrote the song Low Hanging Fruit literally about 10 minutes after watching it going, oh my God, look, they're just picking the low hanging fruit. And all these people, you're not going to hear from them in three years or some of you will, but, you know, so it's me just venting. But having fun with writing a song using as many tree, root and leaf <laughs> analogies as I can. And why not? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you say you're writing autobiographically, but again, you know, listening to The Boys Light Up this afternoon before I spoke to you, and looking at some of the lyrics, and there's lots of songs in there that, that basically that it sounds like the story of uh, a teenage lad growing up in a small town. So it sounds like the well, autobiographical lyrics go back a long way. Yeah, I think so. And just, you know, you write what you know. And I think that album is some of the songs, yes, were certainly written about the, the sort of suburb I grew up, up in, which was called Mount Eliza. And it's just the things that I observed there. And it was not so much a small town. It was, a, it was a seaside kind of place. It was the kind of place where the rich people from Melbourne came down and had a lot of people had their holiday houses down there. Right. So there's a bit of sort of old money in summertime. So, and the sort of shenanigans that went on and I sort of, you know, heard about them or observed them. So I just kind of wrote about those sort of things. Fair enough. So listen, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. And I know you've got other, other um, meetings coming up this afternoon, so I shan't keep you much longer, but um, you've got Toontown Lullabies due out uh, next month, I understand. I think it's due out July the 10th, I believe. Excellent. Well, we shall look forward to hearing it when it comes out. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for your time, James. Appreciate it a lot. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Bye-bye now. See you. Bye.
Uh, a month or two or three to have a look at all sorts of series on Netflix and other other services. All the, all, all the series are available. Yes, However, yes. Netflix is, let's face it, um, the biggie. One of the ones that we've both seen and really, I think, both enjoyed oh, was this so, yeah. Spanish high octane. That's not too um, over. No, they'll do. A word. High no. octane crime drama called Money Heist. Yes. Wow, three series. I have to say, I got through all three of them. <laughs> I think it was three. Was it four? Four. There four. Well, there, four. It, was, it was a film. Two. It was a series. Of, it was a game of two halves. Yes, it was. There's two. Yeah. yeah, one story is two series, and the other story is two yeah. series. And uh, it was an absolute rollicking, adrenaline-fueled yes. ride of a, a story. So, um, it, well, I'm, I'll even mention a little back, back story how I came to watch it. My brother in England told me about it, right? And he, and he said, he said, you have to see it. it's the best thing ever, right? And and so um, started watching it, and I made the mistake of watching it. Um, dubbed right and and got about 20 minutes in and thought why am I wasting my time with this and then a few other people told me about it as well and again my brother said um, you know you really do need to watch this it's the best thing on TV I thought fine okay we'll give it a go so we tried watching it again this time we watched it subtitled yes and at the end of the first episode which I think was about seven minutes long or at least that's how it felt we're going <laughs> Wow, <laughs> yes. that's spectacular. I think, Neil, we're very sorry, mate. You were quite right. We should have listened to you. I'll listen to my brother in future. Yes. And, and so you've got, the, the, I mean, it's a ridiculous, ludicrous premise. You've got a bunch of, of criminals mm. who are assembled by a guy who calls himself the Professor. Yes. Um, and they all, they all take on pseudonyms of cities of importance to yes. them. And they're going to break into the Royal Mint in Bas... In Barcelona. Got to get this pronunciation right. <laughs> right. Um, and they're going to steal billions upon billions of euro. Mm. Um, and it's obviously it's a barky mad premise. Yes. And but you know the characters are are developed. I mean to the extent that you know it starts at the, at the start of each episode. It'll tell you you know um, Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. 76 hours since the yes, heist began. Yes, yes. And you think, well, we're 12 episodes in, how can it only be 76 hours? <laughs> yes. But they are spending so much time developing the relationships between Very much. the characters, the, 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 you know, the, the, the heisters, the, the, yes, the robbers. That's a good word. You've got the, the, a few of the, um, the hostages. Yes. You've got the police, the, the police on the outside. The police on the outside. And then the interplay between the police and the professor. Yeah. And the whole thing is just, it, it is so utterly, utterly absorbing and hypnotic. It is. That you can't stop watching no, it. No, and it, on top of all that, you've got the Latin passion of the the characters. The, the, um, the, the, passion's the right word. It's, it's, it's white hot. Is it? A lot just... of the time. And, um, so they're, they're reacting with, um, just a heartfelt, um, emotion to what's going on around them. Loyalty and, and betrayal, love and hate, um, treason and also, and, and all sorts of things are going on. Um, and it's, the story starts out as an out-and-out out crime story, but very much it becomes a political conspiracy story. Yes. It's a commentary on social, the social um, uh, haves and have-nots in, in modern society. So, so they become part of a broad picture. The, the whole of the country buys into about yes. 
Are they bad guys? Or are they actually good guys? And that carries on into the second series. Yes. The, and sorry, the second story arc, which is series three and four. I'm getting a bit involved there. Excuse me. Um, so that's, that's part of it as well. It's also a really interesting, I thought, uh, glimpse. Well, glimpse isn't the right word. It's a more than a glimpse. It's um, a long, hard stare. At the social mores of Spanish society. Possibly, yes. Man and women. Sex is talked about so much more openly yep. than perhaps we do out in this part of the world. Um, 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 the gender battle is very much part of it. Yes. Um, it, 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 not all, uh, That troubled me occasionally because they were very happy to show um, one of the characters is... Uh, Os- no, uh, the... Oslo, which is the one who's the beautiful Paris. I'm getting confused. With Hang on, which, which one? Well, the two female um, yes. robbers. There was, there was Tokyo, Tokyo, there was, Tokyo, and Nairobi. Yes, Tokyo was the one who does the voiceover. Tokyo. I'm talking about Tokyo, who yeah. is a, a attractive model woman, played by Ursula Corberon. Yes, I've, I mentioned that because there was a lot of scenes of her bum and her half naked body. There was a lot of sexualization in the imagery yeah. around her, particularly, but other women as well. At the same time as it was trying to be a socially uplifting moral story, I thought that was a little bit it's of a double in, standard interesting here. Interesting point, yes. Uh, but however, um, it's just charges along, really charges along at a rate of not, not watching it. You you can feel your adrenaline levels yep. rise. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard not to just watch several of them in a row. Yes, um, we we watched it back to back. Like every night, we watched one or two more. But the, it shifts gears quite abruptly, doesn't yeah. it? The, the end of the first series, I got the feeling that they should have ended. Was in the first story, right? First two series, there was a very clean end there. It was, um, and you thought that was just perfect. It was as perfect a completely self-contained TV experience as you could really wish for. Um, and then suddenly, although there, there, is, there is one character development, which I'll, you and I can talk about later on, okay? Because it's a huge spoiler otherwise, okay? Which I'm still not 100% convinced about. But other than that, it was superbly well done. Yeah. And you're constantly going, oh, how are they going? Where, where, where? No, I just no. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. But then the second story, yes, where they literally put the band back together again. Yes. Yes. It felt like they shifted gears. Yeah. And so rather than having the incredibly detailed, complex relationships, it felt like they were just going from one uh, set-piece explosion thing to another. And there were too many episodes where a million bullets flew and no one got hurt. Right, yeah, there yeah. There was yeah. a bit too much action nonsense. Yeah, yeah. But it's, for all of its flaws, it was still... It, that was not enough to no. undo the good work that oh, the first two stories yeah. did. That's right. The characters, and the, the, you're right. I think you're right to point to the writing. Yeah. This story is quite complicated in the way it's told, but you, you, you're with it. Yes. They, they keep you in, in it. Yes. And you can't help but get to like these criminals. I mean, it's, well, are they criminals? But the, well, they are. Uh, but um, you can't help but get attached to them. So it's really, really well done in that regard. Yeah. But, but with regard to the writing, um, yeah. there were. There was one thing that absolutely delighted me. Mm-hmm. We, were watching, we were watching it in subtitles, so we got to hear the Spanish, yeah. and and I, you know, I got to recognise both of my Spanish words in it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I I, I know I, the the tiny. I'm not trying to say I speak Spanish. I know the tiniest smidge from living in Florida all those years. Right. Um, so you, you listen, you hear things, you recognise. But I did notice reading the subtitles. Yes. There was one moment where someone references a line from Terminator Two. Ah. And so in English. The captions in English said, like they said in the film, hasta la vista, baby. Right. Now, what on earth do you do 
when they are using Spanish as a foreign language in English yes. to translate something that was in Spanish. And, and so we actually wound it back and listened. And in Spanish, it was like, um, como se dice sayonara, baby? <laughs> and I just thought that, that's really, really interesting. So, so it works on so, so many yeah. different levels. Yeah. It's an amazing piece of TV. It is. I'd, I'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who wouldn't be entertained by that. Yeah, really. We, we were stunned by yeah, it. Yeah, it was great. It was okay. Really... Money heist. If you haven't seen it, see it. What, what are you doing with your life? Seriously. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing show. It okay. really, really. Now, Steve, was. there's a one that I haven't seen at all, but I think you were quite taken by it. An Israeli drama. Ah, yes. What's all that about? Shtisel. Now. Shtisel. 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 Now, are you aware of a Netflix show called Unorthodox? I've heard of it. That's yeah. a Jewish drama, isn't it? Yeah, this one's this one was the like, so the gateway drug. Okay, it was one that a lot of people would talk about. It's a four part drama set in New York, mm-hmm. and it's about a young woman, uh, Esty, played by an actress named Shira Haas, who is married into uh, another family within a very very strictly ultra orthodox uh, community mm-hmm. in I think Brooklyn mm-hmm. in New York, and and she rebels, and she flees New York. Right. And she actually flees as far as Berlin, I think it is. Um, and so, four-part drama, absolutely fascinating, very, very well done. And and this young woman, Shira Hart, in the middle of it is is absolutely superb. She she's a real star. Um, so I then found out, some saw mention of the fact that that she had actually um, been in a. Almost a soap opera, but that's that's not fair. That doesn't do it justice. Uh, a show from set in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, in an ultra orthodox community in Jerusalem called Shtisel, which is the name of the family okay. that, that she comes from. And so there's there's the the the, the, the patriarch Shulem Shtisel, who's this, this this curmudgeonly old bloke who who wants to be a good father but doesn't know how to. But the the, the show kind of ra- largely revolves around him and his son um, Akiva, played with the most astonishing subtlety and beauty by a guy named Mikhail Aloni. Um, the way his face responds to what's happening around him is the most gloriously nuanced acting I've ever seen. Wow. You can just watch him. Just like something, Somebody says something to him, it's very slightly. Uh, yeah. His face shifts just enough for you to know exactly what's going on. So around him you've got, um, he, he is the unluckiest man in love possible. Even within the the matchmaking tradition of the ultra orthodox Jewish community in which he lives, you've got um, I'm trying to think who else is in it. You've got um, his his sister, who, whose husband may or may not be a complete wastrel, mm. and their daughter, played by um, Shira Haas, who plays um, Rukami in this series, but quite a bit younger, uh, and she's absolutely disgusted with her father because she can't decide whether he's a decent bloke or not. And the whole thing is done with it's it, it, it's slow mm. it's it's not got the same high energy of say a money heist by yeah. any stretch instead yes. what it is is it takes the time to explore the characters things happen slowly but you get to know the people involved the acting is across the board beautiful mm-hmm. um you will come to love and hate these various characters in different degrees as the show progresses and it is lovely and so far they've made two series right uh, they're about 12 episodes each and they were about to start work on a third really? when you, you may be aware there's a little bit of a pandemic on at the moment. Yes. So you, you might, might as well just get your attention. Uh, but apparently, because Israel's doing quite well, 
apparently they're starting to work on the third series okay. now. Right. Uh, and I can't wait. I've got one more episode left to go on series two. Okay. And um, it, 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 we're going to find out whether or not Kive is going to be lucky or not in love. And the chances are he's not. <laughs> but okay. I need to find out because <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about him. I really am. <laughs> it's lovely. Okay. Cannot, I, but it, it's, it's not... It's not sharp, it's not snappy, it's not anything. It's just nice. Okay. And okay. I can't speak highly right. enough of it. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Well, Beat that. I don't think I can. <laughs> but I would. I do want to talk about another, yet another crime series. I think it seems to be watching crime dramas all the time. Are you getting any this ideas? Is, uh, this is an American series called The Sinner. Oh, yeah. It's had three series so far. Oh, wow, okay. Um, it's based in a little fictional little town in upstate New York in which one detective, um, Harry Ambrose, okay. is the central character. He's played by the actor Bill Pullman. Oh, right. He's yeah. been in movies. I don't think he's been set the world on fire in movies, but this happens to be a role which fits him really, really well. Now, he was actually in the very... He was briefly... In The, the High Note. Note. Yes. Was. And he was indeed a high note in it. He was. I quite like him, to be honest, yeah. Yes. Uh this is this is a bit of a different take on it is gritty it is dark it is psychological it is pretty slow moving but where, where this story holds the concept or the premise of it maybe differs a little bit is we know what the crime is and we know who's committed the crime almost straight away oh okay and this is about the detective harry mm-hmm. getting to know the person who's done it, oh. trying to find out why, okay, and maybe finding out that they may have physically committed the act of a murder, okay, but they may have not been wholly responsible for it. Oh, that now I'm guessing from your wording and from your delivery that you are definitely very, very delicately avoiding giving spoilers. There, yes, it sounds like something very deftly constructed. Yes, so and you. I mean, the risk of giving away who does it straight yeah. away is you think, well, what's the drama here? Yeah. So it's, it's coming at it from the point of view of Harry, who is himself a troubled man. Right, yeah. And throughout three whole series, you are only just beginning to understand what it is that's happened in Harry's life, which would lead him to want to get close to a criminal and find out why you did this. Yeah. The rest of the police force there think, well... There's no doubt that this person did it. Let lock him up. Move on. Yeah. But Harry wants to know. Harry wants to dig. So it's as much about the mind of Harry as it is the mind of the criminal. Excellent. Um, it isn't fast moving. No. Um, but I did get drawn into it. I think the third series got really psychological. I mean, it, Hitchcock would have looked like a lightweight in, in series three. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Fair and I think the third series um, is quite disturbing actually okay. uh, and some people might find it almost um, more than disturbing um, you know they might have to turn their eyes away this is the ideas of it yeah Beca- um, and uh, however um, that's probably enough it's it's I found it quite enthralling but really you it's not it's not a crime drama like yeah. money heist it's a million miles from money right, heist right, right. In, in its delivery it's a it's a bur- slow burning psychological drama well, tell you what, you, you also recommended to me uh, a while back um, Ozark, which I started watching okay. after Money Heist, um, and, and you weren't wrong on that, so I'm inclined to trust your judgment okay. here. Oh, thank you. Well, Ozark, by the way, yeah. is a written review on our 
website. Yes, yes it um, is. Yes. Cravepodcast.com. Which uh, I'm avoiding reading yet okay. because we've not reached the end of it, <laughs> but I will. Uh, Ozark is also a slow burn in some ways. Yes. Oh. Uh, but it also has, but has some other elements which kick it along and some quite memorable characters. Oh, it. yeah. But anyway, we, we can perhaps come back to a chat about that when you've, yes. you've worked your way through. But anyway, The Sinner is not a light entertainment for, of no, an evening. It doesn't sound like it. No, no. <laughs> but it does sound very intriguing, I have okay, to say. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going I'm to give that a look. Okay, well, lovely. So, Steve, normally at this time of our podcast, you would regale us with um, a list of wonderful items of cinema and music coming up to yeah, that we could yeah. talk about. About that. <laughs> I'm not sure if we can do it this time. So, so listen, there are there are announcements getting made. Yes. And I'm not even going to waste my breath with them because quite, quite frankly, right, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like, we're going to get political for a second, it's a, it's a bit like how people are constantly asking the Prime Minister at the moment, when are we going to open up travel? Yes. And she's saying, well, seriously? Mm. We haven't the faintest idea. So even, the only one that I think is even worth mentioning, I'm not even, I can't even remember the dates, I haven't, even, I haven't bothered prepping this because there's no point, <laughs> but um, Simple Minds right. have actually scheduled dates for December 2021. Right, right. 18 months from now. Okay, and right. that's the only realistic announcement. Okay. Actually, that's yeah. not entirely true. That's not true at all. Well, there are domestic um, yes. acts like um, um, the the dudes are going, coming later yes. in the year, and, and and the Beths are going to be playing. Yes. Uh, they're doing an album release tour very shortly, so there is stuff coming up. Mm. Um, but uh, at the moment, I'm not even looking at at, what, yeah. at at future stuff because we're just glad that we can even go to the pictures. Yeah, right yeah. Just as a, just as an unabashed plug for our own website, of course. Um, you and I did speak to a number of musicians over the lockdown who yes, were working we on projects at home. Absolutely. So do go to cravepodcast.com and have a look. There's about three or four or five interviews with yes. a number of musicians who've had to get their head around um, creating at home or collaborating at home. Yes. They talk about how they've done that and the music that's coming up. So that that's worth a look. Absolutely. In fact, one of them, Grace Kelly, the very first one we spoke to, I think, went right at the very start of lockdown. You can find the information, as Simon says, cravepodcast.com, <laughs> but she's going to be doing um, a, a, a smallish tour, including a release party for her um, her first EP. So, yeah, there, there is stuff starting to happen, but at the moment... Let's just take it slow. Eh? <laughs> I think we shall. We've got no choice. Absolutely. Anyway, it's been great to have a chat again, Steve. Um, to travel down the road to Pukekohe. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and we're back finally. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, um, so we've talked about our website. If you want to email us, you can do that at podcast at cravepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter, um, on Facebook, on Instagram at Crave Podcast. Yeah, as you should. Well, yeah, absolutely. Why haven't you? So uh, good to be back with you again. We'll see you again. Uh, I'm Simon Mercer. I'm Steve McCabe. That's what's been entertaining us this week. It certainly is. Right, well, that, that actually really cracked on quite nicely. <laughs>